of what we do at NPR News is give you a new perspective about your community. My first guest this morning has the special ability to find art in unexpected places. Alex V. Sapoli is our senior arts reporter and critic. She started at NPR News this past November. Thanks for joining me, Alex. Thank you, Angela. I'm so excited to be here. So describe, you're part of a team, our arts and entertainment uh, team. Describe the types of stories that you do and the events and people that you try to cover. So I'm really interested in the visual arts um, specifically, but I would say I like to cover everything that (laughs) is culture related. So um, as we'll probably talk about today, I've covered everything from rest areas to cornhole to (laughs) snow sculpture to fine art. So it is a wide net that we cast over in the arts team. How does one develop an appreciation? I feel like it takes a special eye to fully appreciate what is considered art. What do you think is going on with you that gives you the ability to to see and appreciate things like that? Oh, my God. That's such a big question. Okay. So um, I was lucky enough to grow up with um, a dad and a grandmother who were both uh, very good artists, hobby Mm. artists. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was with me from a very young age and they encouraged me to draw and paint um, Mm -hmm. from a very young age. And they had just like a massive library of art books. So I really like was... You developed that appreciation early. Early, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then my mom also always had magazines and newspapers around and was always reading. So Mm -hmm. she kind of showed me what it was like to be a curious person. Um, mm-hmm. and I don't know. I just look yeah. for stuff I like to see. Because I feel like I, I would just walk by things and not get it. But I, I think that is a gift. And I, I love hearing how you develop that, that eye. Now, I know that the first story that you did for the arts team at NPR News was unexpected. And so <laughs> I want our listeners to hear this uh, in case they didn't hear it. Let's listen to part of your uh, story about a rest stop along Interstate 94. Currently... There are only 10 rest areas in the entire country on the National Historic Register, and none in Minnesota. Bergen Lake is unusually old and untouched. Built in 1971, it is nearly identical to its original plan. Most rest areas will never reach this age, as MnDOT will typically rebuild or renovate them by the 25-year mark. Bergen Lake's historic evaluation says that it is noteworthy for its architecture, a little-known style called Funk Revival. It is one of the earliest examples of the state's modernist rest areas. The main building also has a unique feature, a floor mosaic of the state of Minnesota. Andrea Weber of MnDOT calls it a sweet gesture. Rest areas really are kind of a welcome mat from the state of Minnesota for people who are driving through. I think this is a great example of how you turn on NPR News and you learn something. So let me dissect this. Uh, first of all, this is about a rest area. What is funk revival? Great question. I had never heard of it myself. <laughs> okay. Um, it is. It was a term coined by a historian, uh, art historian out of Chicago, that describes this kind of 70s architecture that looks like the Pizza Hut roofs. Mm-hmm. It's got those like sweeping like. roofs. Yeah, right. And that's what this uh, rest stop has. And then you also said modernist rest area. Yeah. So it's the same thing. The architecture is part of this kind of like modernist post-war um, mm-hmm. era architecture. So that is the funk revival. It's just... And this story came to be because you drove by and saw this rest area or someone identified it like, oh, that's that's something you should should think about doing a story about. How did this come about? 
I actually was attending an architecture conference here. It was like oh. my first week on the job, and I had been an editor at an architect magazine, and I knew that you could find a lot of good stories at these places. So, yeah, I attended a session at this conference, and um, Rob Williams of MnDOT was giving a presentation on rest areas. I love it. And your favorite, I mean, you've had some time now to really drive around the, the, the Twin Cities. What's your favorite local structure and why? Right now, it is the Garden Mausoleum at Lakewood Cemetery. In Minneapolis. Um, in Minneapolis. It is just this beautiful meditative space. Um, mm-hmm. It's built into the landscape. So there's these beautiful, massive windows that are built like right into the grass mounds. Um, it's just like a great place for reflection mm-hmm. and very modern. And so I know that um, that travel has been a big part of your life. Uh, you lived in France twice. Uh, and we mentioned you wrote for a, a travel magazine. Uh, tell us about uh, living in France and writing for a travel magazine as well. Yeah, so um, I lived in Paris when I was studying abroad, and that's where I met my husband, Tony. And then we promised when we got engaged that we would live there again. So about <laughs> 15 years later, we went and taught English in the south of France. Oh. Uh, yeah, it was, was amazing. It yep. It was, but I taught uh, French teenagers who are even cooler than American teenagers, so it was very humbling. <laughs> um, and then, as far as uh, working for, I was a copywriter for a travel agency, and um, right out of college, mm-hmm. and uh, I've always loved to travel, and was writing about places, and kind of sparked um, my curiosity about journalism. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a turning point, I'm guessing, that came that you you really want to go all in on, on journalism or specifically radio? Uh, journalism. Uh-huh. So I was writing about Dubai as a destination for this travel agency. And I always researched the places a lot before I wrote about them. And I started reading about just kind of all the human rights violations that were going to create mm-hmm. this tourist destination. And it just kind of made me realize I want to be on the other side of writing about these things and try to get to some some sort of truth with my writing. Mm. What kind of feedback do you get from uh, readers and listeners when you do um, a story about art or about travel? What Do people have follow-up questions for you or other suggestions? Uh, yeah, I mean, I get a lot of people reaching out, like, if you like this, you should follow that um, mm-hmm. all across the country, which is really, really cool. But it's always very surprising what hits people. It's never what I expect. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the cornhole story, really, really. What is the cornhole people. story? Minnesota has its first professional player as of 2022. And she is a young woman out of Rochester named Lexi Hugeback. So we told her story. Right. Um, lots of, of, of curious things about our state. And isn't it, isn't it great when we, you know, we talk about trying to connect people so we can tell a story like that, uh, that helps folks maybe who've never heard of a cornhole or that that particular uh that that that's is it a sport is what I call it yeah I think they'd consider it a sport right yeah uh, being able to do a story that's gonna let someone learn something new yeah I mean I learned something new with this like the community behind cornhole is incredible like they're very supportive very diverse um it's a real slice of life and we talked about traveling, um, your history of traveling, and, and your mom's influence. What's your mom's story um, when it comes to traveling and how that influenced you? 
My mom is one of the biggest influences in my life. She is an immigrant. She was born in the Netherlands um, just right after World War II, and it was kind of a war-torn country. So her immediate family, uh, they got on a ship and moved to Cape Town, South Africa. And that is where she spent uh, the next 25 years of her life. Mm. Um, So traveling for me is something I'm really passionate about, but it was always also a necessity if I wanted to see my family. Mm -hmm. So um, from a very young age, I was exposed to travel, and I I really think it shaped who I am because I'm so curious about how other people do things. Yes, me too. And Alex, as you know, I was recently in South Africa. You and I talked before my trip. And, you know, I had a chance to talk with people who live through apartheid. You were in the country uh, visiting before apartheid fell, um, before yeah. it ended. What do you remember about that time? Um, so I was in third grade, and it was probably a year or two before it fell. And it was my first international trip. And I, you know, very much remember seeing the whites-only signs Um you know, the real division of people, there was white beaches and black beaches. And that was very jarring for somebody who was growing up in a in a different space back home. Mm-hmm. And so when you think about the value of, um, you know, what you're doing now as as a, a arts reporter and the work that the other reporters do, like just the value of telling other people's stories, like that's what I enjoy about, you know, coming to work every day. Uh, is sharing experiences and having our audience have a chance to to listen to other people and hear other voices and other ways that people are living. Do you enjoy that as well? Absolutely. And I think travel is a big part of teaching me that every single person has a story. Mm. Anything you're working on that we're going to hear on the radio in the next uh, couple of weeks or months that you can share with us that you're excited about? Yeah, I'm very excited. I'm working on two stories. One is about the Emerging Curators Institute, which helps people um, who aren't taking the academic route into curation, which can be kind of an elite pathway. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a really amazing program here in the Twin Cities. And then um, there's also going to be a book release called Latin Art in Minnesota that um, really talks about the impact of Latin American artists in throughout Minnesota over the past like 30 or so years. So those are two projects I'm really excited about. Well, I'm so happy you're here in the newsroom with us. You've joined the NPR news team and all that you're able to add uh, to our news team. We've been talking with Alex V. Sapoli, a senior arts reporter and critic here at NPR News. Thanks for your time, Alex. Thanks so much, Angela. Your support helps us amplify voices in our community to inform, include, and inspire our listeners. Today, I'm going to introduce you to more people who are new to the NPR team who create trusted, meaningful stories that reflect Minnesota. Right now, I'm talking with Sam Struzas, an associate digital producer here at NPR News, and she joined the newsroom last June. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Angela. I joke with you. It's been months. Does it feel like years? It really does. <laughs> I, it's hard to think I haven't hit my one year yet. Yeah, it's just that the new, there's just been so much to cover, to talk about, to process. Tell us a little bit about your job. What does your job involve as a, a digital producer? 
Yeah, so for a lot of times, I'm really just the last set of eyes before articles go live. So I work 12 to 8. On the website. On the website, yes. Mm -hmm. So I'm doing really just web-only stuff for the most part. And then lots of social media prep. I'm the lead on Instagram. And then when I get time, I can do a lot of my own reporting, too, which has been nice. Which is great. That sounds like a fun job. Mm -hmm. The variety. I like it a lot. So let's talk about these social media posts. Uh, What are you thinking when you are crafting... um, a post on Instagram, but you're promoting news content. What goes into that? I think a lot of times I'm thinking about how either this can help someone and keep them informed and learn about new things, or also sometimes kind of being funny, like humanizing news so mm-hmm. people just like realize who NPR News is, that it's more than just like one person running accounts, all of us, and like we can be funny and be in news too. We can be. And so the goal is we're trying to expand our audience um, and and recognizing what's happening with social media, more people spending more time there and really meeting people where they are and, and getting them to come and take in the, the content that we have on the radio and on the website. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Um, can you give me an example of a, a news story where um, social media was really helpful um, in, in letting people know what was going on and maybe even providing them with information on resources? So always in Minnesota, we have lots of winter storms, as we know. So um, especially a lot of the ones that we've had lately, we've been trying to be a better resource for folks to know what's happening across the state. Um, We did have one specifically at the end of December where we were providing a lot of resources to homeless folks for warming centers. Mm -hmm. We did a post and it was all the warming centers across the state in different regions from like Duluth, Bemidji, Brainerd to here. And that did really well. That was shared thousands of times with people. And I think just people, when stuff like that happens, they don't really know what to do or how to help. Mm -hmm. And I think having stuff packaged up that they can send folks is always really helpful. And then within that same vein, um, with the Pine Ridge Reservation storm in South Dakota, we had also made up an article in a post with donation links so people would know what to do. People weren't able to leave the reservations. They were burning a lot of their clothes to stay warm because they had ran out of firewood and stuff like that. And I got an email afterwards from someone that said their donations spiked so much and they didn't know why. And then they saw the NPR News article and Instagram post, and that made me feel so good, like I did something that really helped folks. So that's really important to me. That's great. Again, a, an example, someone maybe scrolling through their social media feeds and then happening upon something that uh, can actually help them improve their lives. So that's that's a wonderful example. Um, so how did you uh, decide to become a journalist? I, I know that you went to a fabulous college, um, uh, Northwestern University, with which has a great journalism program. But um, how did you decide or when did you decide that that was going to be your career path? Mm-hmm. So um, for undergraduate, I went to University of Wisconsin La Crosse. Mm-hmm. And then I went to Northwestern for graduate school in social justice and investigative journalism. But initially, I was English education when I joined at UWL. I think I just really liked um, the aesthetic of, like, being an English teacher, like what you see in movies. (laughs) And I wanted to be, like, a high school teacher and help kids. And then I realized that I don't really like spending that much time with kids. And it wasn't a good fit for me. That's what you learned before you were in the classroom. Yes. So then Mm -hmm. I switched to English um, and media studies. And then I joined my student newspaper. So that was a really defining experience for me. And I did a lot of fun stuff. I rose up like through the ranks. I was in charge of the paper. That was great. And then 
when I was a senior in college, the moment that stood out to me the most is we had an incident at our college with an art professor who had been sexually harassing and assaulting students. And the student newspaper are the ones who we broke the story and we had to cover that and what that was looking like and just kind of how it impacted current students who had like created relationships with him and trusted him. Mm -hmm. So I think that really opened up my eyes and I was like, I can cover this one of two ways. Like I can side with the school or I can hold this person accountable. And we did hold him accountable and the feedback we got, especially standing by survivors, was really important to me. And you mentioned you've had a chance to do some reporting here at NPR News. Um, and I want to talk about a story that you recently did uh, about uh, Team Trans Twin Cities, uh, a hockey team made up of transgender and non-binary players. And uh, first, let's, let's listen to a little bit. Of it. We've pulled, uh, pulled a clip of it, uh, your interview with the team's president, um, Annie Doom Ryder Bell. Let's listen. It's really life-saving for folks. Um, suicide rates have decreased on our hockey team. It gives people a sense of purpose in life, um, that they feel like there's a place they can authentically show up and be who it is that they are. Um, and just playing a sport is important. It's, you know, healthy. Um, it's mentally healthy and supportive. You've got a team that, you know, that is relying on you and you're relying on your team. Um, there's a deep sense of connection, um, especially with Team Trans being also the space where you can just, we, we can just really normalize the hockey experience. You don't, you get to exist without having to feel fear or question yourself inside of any of the spaces that you would see in the, in the hockey arena or just just the general hockey experience. So why was it important for you important for you to cover this particular story? So I saw it as an event happening at Excel and I didn't really see any other coverage on it. And I think a lot of times when I do reporting with NPR, I'm looking for gaps. Like what are things mm-hmm. that reporters have been too swamped to cover, stuff we haven't covered or done justice to in the past and I think a lot of that has to do with the queer community so I always try to leap at those stories and include those Um, so I thought it was important for NPR to have this especially in a climate where trans folks are seeing a lot of their rights stripped away and facing a lot of violence. What was it like uh, the process of getting to know some of these hockey players? It was a really beautiful experience. I think starting off, I definitely had to gain a lot of folks' trust, which Mm -hmm. is completely understandable because I'm coming into the situation as a cisgender white woman. But it was really worth it, and I am very honored that I was able to tell their stories and attend the game and just see a lot of young queer folks seeing basically their icons on the ice. That was really important to me, and it's it's their story and their voices. I just kind of helped them. Um, from walking by your desk. I know that you like to read and you spend a lot of time at the library. No surprise that you did a story about the most checked out books at libraries around the state of Minnesota. And um, do you remember some of the the answers that you got? Yes. So um, the most popular books we got were from William Kent Kruger, who is a Minnesota author. And then we had like Where the Crawdad Sings and some other late movie adaptions. Um, and then some Minnesota history books and even a Minnesota driver's manual, too. <laughs> and what's your your personal favorite book? I go back and forth, so I think it's always changing. But um, some books that I've really enjoyed lately, I really loved um, Crying in H Mart, um, Everything I Know About Love, and Daisy Jones and the Six. Right. And I saw a book on your desk that I have that I haven't finished reading, The People You Meet on Vacation. Yes, I, I also <laughs> got that from Gretchen Brown, and I need One to read it, too, still. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Like my neighbor gave it to me uh, as a nice vacation book. Um, and what do you do when you're not uh, reading books and trying to like tell stories and, and getting folks to engage with us on our website and social media channels? Uh, what are some of your other hobbies? 
I love spending cat uh, time with my cat Zelda. Um, <laughs> Hi, Zelda. <laughs> she's a black and white cat named after Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Um, <laughs> Halloween is my favorite holiday, so I love like all things witchy, spooky stuff like that. I love listening to music. Phoebe Bridgers, SZA, Taylor Swift. All right. Uh, I'm so happy you're in our newsroom, that you're part of the team. It's been great getting to know you. And uh, thank you for giving us your time so our listeners can get to know you. Thank you, Angela. All right. We've been talking with Sam Struzas, an associate digital producer here at NPR News. There are so many people behind the scenes here at NPR News who care about getting you quality content that you want to hear and read, so much so that my next guest personally reaches out to organizations and people to hear what they want to hear us cover. Faven Gerezgeher is a producer and a reporter on the NPR News digital team. Faven joined the team in October as part of a new effort to report on and about young people. Welcome to the show, Faven. Oh, thanks. Right. So what's with young people? Because, you know, I'm 54, but I still think I'm young. When you say young people, what's a description of, of really who you're, you're targeting? Yeah. I mean, young is relative, but we're <laughs> aiming for uh, 18 to 35. Okay. And so what does that mean? You're, you're looking for a perspective or, or voices that maybe we're not hearing enough of on NPR News? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're really trying to make sure we're reporting for and um, about young people. Mm -hmm. um, so having their voices on air, but also telling stories about them that also serve them. So they're being able are able to make informed decisions about their world too because of you know stories that are more relevant to them. I remember uh, you were really busy right before election day. So what was going on? What kinds of stories were you doing leading up to uh, election day in November, for example? Yeah, we were tasked with creating different content that was more specifically geared towards young people around elections, voting, and politics. Mm -hmm. um, so we had started with TikTok, and we're really trying to convert some of our political coverage and content, um, but also create new content that was really specifically for this audience. Um, and so we were doing college visits, uh, talking to students about what issues were important with them, and why they were voting, if at all. And then also trying to make sure that we're giving out information in a way that is accessible and quick and easy to read. Um, so we did a lot of explainers on web and uh, created TikToks around that, too. Let's talk about some of the stories you worked on. I, I know you've done some profiles, particularly looking at some of the uh, uh, younger state lawmakers. Yeah, as part of our work, I have been profiling uh, some of the first Gen Z lawmakers uh, that are coming into this session this year. So Zaina Muhammad is one. She's also one of the first black uh, female senators. And then Rep uh, Representative Elliot Engen, who is in the House. Really exciting to see kind of this movement happening across uh, the spe political spectrum of young people who are being kind of called to action and just like running for office and, and pursuing things even when they are feeling like they're not a lot of other young people and they're kind of just starting that out. And it, it is interesting to see so many young lawmakers uh, and first-time voters. That was part of something I think you guys were focused on as well. Yeah. I mean, as part of our conversations with voters, you know, as we're out looking for stories or reporting, we're also just asking people, like, what are you thinking about? What are What is your approach to politics? 
a lot of people telling us that like sometimes they're voting, but they're not necessarily seeing elections go in the way that they wanted. And so they're just really like, I'm just going to run for office. I'm going to make the change happen that I want to see. And then also organizing around other issues. So throughout the year, kind of lobbying at their campuses or going to um, different organizations and to the Capitol to just push for changes outside of election cycles as well. And so do you think if we have more uh, content, more stories and voices of younger people that, you know, one of our, our goals right now is to try to expand our audience to get more young listeners? Do you think that's part of the way we're going to uh, draw their attention? I hope so. I mean, one thing that has been surprising is like a lot of young people do listen to NPR News. Uh, I've heard quite a few people tell me they love your show. Um, and because they know they think I'm 21. <laughs> that, probably. Exactly. Um, <laughs> that's good because, uh, you know, the the ability and um, the necessity of just being well informed, particularly right now, like understanding the economy and just how things works. I mean, that, that's how you're going to make better decisions that will impact you possibly for a lifetime. Yeah. And I mean, I, my hope is also that as people are hearing these stories from young people, that it's also like these stories are for everyone. Mm-hmm. So everyone also having a greater understanding of like, what are people of different generations thinking? How are they acting? Um, and I think it also just makes us all more informed and hopeful about each other to be mm-hmm. like, actually, people are very thoughtful. And there are people who are working towards things. It's not just whatever initial impression you have based on you know, a young cousin or someone you saw mm-hmm. out on the street. And, you know, I have a uh, favorite, you know, I have two uh, kids who are in college. My son and daughter are both in college. And a lot of times I'll ask, you know, they'll talk to me about things in the news. And I'm like, where did you hear that? And they'll like, well, it was on Instagram or I saw it on TikTok. And so for a lot of us, uh, more mature people, uh, it is interesting to know that like someone's first contact with something or first awareness about a news event will come from TikTok or Instagram. But that is real. Yeah. I mean, I also follow the research on kind of how people are consuming media. And Mm -hmm. something that really stuck with me is a lot of um, Gen Z specifically are getting their information from TikTok or they prefer videos. Mm -hmm. And so as we are thinking about how are we sharing news in a way that is accessible, it's also like how can we be reaching people where they're at? Right. Um, And they follow influencers or they like it in a short form or just in a way that is more visual. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're growing our TikTok. Um, We actually have grown a lot since elections. And yeah, it's really exciting to kind of see that engagement. Yeah, because it takes me an hour to have a conversation about something. But some of the content that I do, I mean, could, you know, the, the, the main points of it could be shared on TikTok. Right. And so that's sort of what you're looking at. What are the other ways to get some of that same information out? Yeah. And I've also seen like other people use NPR news articles and create their own things. So a really big thing on TikTok is like someone just explaining like, hey, there was a debate that happened between these two governor candidates and Mm -hmm. these are the key takeaways. And so it's really doing what you're doing, but they're doing it in front of a camera and then they're just like... Mm-hmm. Here's a summary, like, if you can't listen to a whole hour. Well, Michael, I'm just trying to get conversation started. So I'm I'm delighted <laughs> to even get mentioned on TikTok. That would be very cool. Um, so let's talk about, uh, personally, how did you get into journalism? Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, young people now have lots of choices, lots of different industries. And so uh, a younger version of you, uh, how were you thinking about journalism and seeing yourself in a position like this? Yeah, I mean, this wasn't where I started. I majored in economics and global studies. And my journalism experience had been a summer camp through 360 in high school. Um, And so during the pandemic, I was also like, I need to change 
kind of my career. And and we should mention 360 Journalism is a, a great program, uh, really looking at high school students around the state who are interested in careers in journalism. Uh, started as a summer camp, but now there's year-round programming as a way to give them um, exposure to journalism, to write and create their own content and have like professional mentors. Uh, a great program. So I'm excited to hear you're one of the graduates of that. Yeah. And I mean, I feel like we have to share about Radio Camp, which is mm-hmm. a partnership that NPR News has with 360, mm-hmm. um, where in the summer we uh, are teaching students about audio editing. They get to interview students and then have their stories uh, shared on the NPR News platform, which yes. is really exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, and people can look out for those applications soon. So you, you majored in economics and global studies. So so then how do we get into this? You do 360. I like this. And then what happens? Yeah, I mean, I had been interested in storytelling. um, And then in the middle of like 2020, where there was just a lot of, um, I think, community pain around the killing of George Floyd and the pandemic, it was a really fitting transition to then um, join the Racial Reckoning Project, which Mm -hmm. was on Ampers. And that was really covering a lot of community reactions and community pain. Um, And so it was, yeah, I think a, a good place for all of the different skills I had built up in research and community organizing um, and just a place that I really appreciated for just being able to kind of connect things and connect with people and find hope um, in community. And looking at, uh, more at your personal story, um, I know that you lived in Eritrea for uh, almost a year, about 10 months, and you have family members there because your parents are from there. Um, during your time there, what did you learn about your family? Yeah, I I learned so much. I mean, that was my first time really spending time with them in an expansive amount. One of the things about being like the child of immigrants is your family is across the world and it's hard to reach them. So Mm -hmm. I learned their little quirks, like when they drink coffee every day and, you know, (laughs) like all of the little children and grandchildren and third, fourth cousins, you know, names and just like got to feel like I actually know them. And so now when I'm having those awkward phone calls around holidays, I actually can have a reference point and be like, yes, I know you. And this is a conversation I look forward to having as mm-hmm. opposed to an obligatory uh, ha- happy holiday. And did it, it somehow shape your understanding of what it means to be an American? Yeah, I, I felt like it was very grounding, mm-hmm. um, you know, growing up as an Eritrean American and the child of people who grew up during a revolution, I think there's just kind of always an in-betweenness. And so to be Mm -hmm. there and to really feel like, okay, yes, I am Eritrean. I also was like, actually, I'm also very American because I'm always (laughs) kind of being faced with the ways that my values are different or, you know, I am more comfortable speaking English and also just realizing that here in the Twin Cities, like, my memories are everywhere, right? Like I have so many f- people and family and friends who know me and care about me here. And, and this is also what makes a home. And so mm-hmm. I was also really excited to come back and um, thinking about like how I'm going to contribute back to my community here in a way that is, um, I don't know, just informed by, by both of these cultures, but also like me feeling like, yeah, I am actually from here. So in the weeks and months to come, uh, what kinds of stories uh, might we see on our website uh, coming from you as you seek out the voices and uh, the uh, stories that young people say that they're interested in? (laughs) Yeah, well, I am working with the team and we all are, we have different interests and, and kind of beats that we're hoping to develop around what, you know, young people and whatever that means to, to be engaged in, co- in covering them. 
Um, and so I have this profile coming out on uh, Representative Engine, who's, uh, again, one of the first Gen Z lawmakers, mm-hmm. um, but also hoping to cover a bit more kind of like stories about college students and the kind of issues that they're organizing around on campus. I know they mm-hmm. have a few different advocacy days at the Capitol coming up. Yeah. And I'm, hope- I'm guessing like mental health and public safety and or safety are top in, in their concerns. Yeah, those were the the top two concerns. Mm-hmm. A lot of concern about like just basic needs mm-hmm. and kind of meeting those first. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also have some really great ideas about how to address it. And so it's kind of ex- exciting to see where that will go and um, just to follow. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad you're in our newsroom. I enjoy dropping by your desk. Uh, and you often help me understand. I'm like, what does this mean, Faven? So, and hopefully I can do the same for you oh, as you, well. Oh, you definitely <laughs> do. I'm always so, so thankful that you are there. And it's always great being uh, here in the office. All right. We've been talking with Faven Gerezkeher, a producer and a reporter for NPR News, working on the digital team. Thank you for your time, Faven. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.